Hey, podcast listeners. This is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. I'm here with Robert Neville, who is, is the former dean of Marsh Chapel, uh, the former dean of the School of Theology, and he is currently a professor of philosophy, religion, and theology here at Boston University. Um, we're here to talk to him today about work he did on what is called Boston Confucianism. And we'll get into precisely what that is uh, in just a moment. So I want to start at sort of the inception of Boston Confucianism, which uh, is at a conference in, in 1991. Could you tell us about how it started and how you sort of came up with this term and decided to proceed after that? The conference was uh, a dialogue conference between Confucians and Christians uh, held at Berkeley in uh, the Graduate Theological Union there. Uh, and it had many people from Asia, uh, but there were four people from the, the Boston area, from Harvard and, and one from Harvard and three from um, Boston University. And the, uh, the conference uh, was uh, proceeding in the usual academic fashion when two women from Asia uh, uh, made some very, very strong accusations against Confucianism as being anti-woman. Uh, and the response to that on the part of many of the Asian men was to say, well, uh, that's not real Confucianism. Uh, real Confucianism uh, is in opposition to the uh, anti-woman culture of East Asia. Well, nobody much believed that. Uh, but I argued uh, that um, Confucianism is not just an East Asian cultural phenomenon. Uh, in fact, it's uh, uh, a, a criticism of culture. Those of us from Boston at that conference um, uh, argued fairly uh, strenuously that Confucianism is not confined to East Asia, that in fact Confucius was a critic of his own culture, and the principles that he appealed to in criticism could be applied uh, to Western societies. And since we were all from Boston, it was a joke. Boston, there were Boston Confucians, <laughs> and it was a, uh, a play on the old phrase about Boston Brahmins. Yeah. Uh, so the Boston Confucians uh, uh, were uh, uh, in uh, in ascendancy at that conference. Um, afterwards, uh, Du Weiming, who was then at Harvard, the head of the uh, Harvard Yenching Library. Um, he liked the title uh, and began to use that seriously. So he wrote the foreword to my book, Boston Confucianism, saying that this is a legitimate form of Confucianism and uh, it should go forward from there. Uh, so in what ways, or, or what are the central tenets of Boston Confucianism as distinguished from Confucianism practiced in Asia? Um, in, in, and I, we're, we're going to get into this more deeply in a moment. Um, but just, just so the listeners have sort of a, a context as to what Boston Confucianism is and, and how it might operate in a Western context. Well, uh, Confucianism generally, or Ruism as it probably should be called, yeah. uh, has been uh, one of the dominant themes in, in the philosophical, religious uh, culture of East Asia. And the question is uh, whether it can be transported to uh, a modern Western culture. Uh, and that's what Boston means in the phrase Boston Confucianism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it, uh, the, the, the work that I've done as a contemporary Confucian from Boston uh, uh, assumes that we have a meritocratic society, more or less, uh, that the, the deep problems of our society are things like racism uh, and sexism, which are different from 
what you would find as problems in uh, East Asia. Uh, I, uh, the stress that I put on uh, Confucianism is its recognition that all of our behaviors are, are ritualized. Uh, that is, they're habits that are learned, that practice of which allows us to get along. So uh, every culture, for instance, has uh, uh, rituals for greetings. Uh, when, so, when somebody uh, big comes at you, uh, Westerners shake their hands. Uh, and uh, East Asians would put their palms together. Uh, different, different ritual greetings. You need to have some ritual greetings or you don't get anywhere. Um, and the ritual uh, means a lot of things. It works on many different levels. Uh, so uh, little kids, uh, toddlers, uh, learn to stand up. Uh, and they learn to stand up in imitation of their parents. Uh, Westerners, when they stand up, generally have their toes splayed apart. Whereas uh, Chinese, when they stand up, have their feet pretty much parallel. That's not uh, strictly so, but there are cultural differences. You can stand either way. Uh, but when Westerners uh, walk, uh, they put the uh, heel down first and then put the toe down. Uh, and uh, East Asians generally are more put both down at once. An exaggeration of the Western style of walking would be the goose step. An exaggeration of the Asian style of walking would be sort of shuffling. Uh, and those are, are two different cultural ways, the ritual ways of, of working. Uh, language is a ritual. Everybody learns a language, maybe more than one. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the ritual of speaking in English, it doesn't tell you what to say, but it gives you the ritual forms by which you can say things. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm sorry to interrupt it here. But due to a technical difficulty, which in other words is a mess up on my part, uh, we are missing about three or four minutes of audio uh, right here. So in order to provide for a little bit of a smoother transition, I will attempt to paraphrase a little bit of what Dr. Neville said. Uh, he was talking about class distinctions within Confucian society and the way in which rituals allowed, allowed for um, some degree of uh, connection or um, exchange between these classes. And uh, I think there was an, uh, also another part about uh, the flattening uh, during the time of Confucius that allowed scholars uh, of the time, uh, st studied people, which it, I think goes by the term Xi, S-H-I, uh, to make their way up the Chinese bureaucracy in a sort of meritocratic way. Now, again, I'm very sorry, this is an extremely poor paraphrase, of what Dr. Neville was saying. I apologize for the mess up, but this is a subject that will come up again in part two and part three of this series with Dr. Bin Song. So again, apologies for the mess up, um, and we'll get right back to the interview. All right, so I want to come back to this question of class in a moment that you were discussing, but when Confucius stresses study, um, it I think it's used in a different context than is, uh, you know, our sort of typical Western sense mm -hmm. of the word study. And as such, I, I was curious if you could sort of define what study means, both in an academic context, but beyond that in the way Confucius uses it. Well, so far as what we know about his own school, um, he, he did want to study um, uh, the texts, uh, and there were many texts that he was, he is alleged to have edited uh, many texts, the I Ching, he wrote uh, a large portion of the commentary on the I Ching. Uh, but he also uh, was a dialectician. That is, he would talk with students. And the form of the analect uh, is him responding to questions from his students and from other people. Uh, 
and they practiced the rituals in, in the school, that is, how to live. Uh, they had a dormitory, uh, and, and Confucius had a, a house not too far away, at least so far as we know. Uh, and they, they practiced what living with the rituals in a good society would be. Then they traveled a lot. So Confucius always wanted to get a job as uh, an advisor to a king. He never did get a very good job, but, uh, and he went back home to uh, uh, the northeast uh, China uh, and continued with his school. Uh, but he, he thought that people would learn by participating in politics. So the people who study international relations could be very good <laughs> Confucius. Uh, I, um, I actually have a question about something that you said just a few moments ago regarding his claim that social chaos could be organized were controlled via education, and that in the past, the, the, the period previous to his existence, to his lifetime, um, that had been the case in China, and you said he claimed falsely. And, and that, that emphasis, to me, um, intimates that there's some kind of, there's some dimension of necessary lie in, in, in the way that, that he structured his, uh, his, his, his ideology and his perspective on how society functioned. And, I, I was just wondering what your perspective was on that because because you did emphasize the the fictitious aspect of that claim. <laughs> well, he, he has a, a famous line in the Analects there where he says that uh, uh, he's he's not original; he's just uh, a transmitter of the wisdom of the ancients. And I think that was because in the context, people respected authority. Uh, you could you could get more authority for what you were advocating if you could show that the that the mythological great sages of a thousand years prior uh, could were on your side. Uh, Plato did not make the same claim. Uh, that is, he acknowledged that he was urging the invention of new modes of thought, uh, whereas Confucius uh, did claim that he was just transmitting the uh, wisdom of the ancients. Now, whether that's a lie, uh, I suspect that he believed it himself, that he, th the, as he understood the function of ritual uh, and uh, the uh, and the texts, uh, he thought that that really was what the ancients did. So uh, the wisdom in the I Ching, uh, which he explained, he thought was there. Fair enough. Um, I think, uh, yeah, getting back to this question of uh, culture and class and kind of uh, all the different uh, groups that Confucianism appeals to, um, I guess tra in, in translating it to a Western context, um, you emphasize uh, the meritocratic aspects and the kind of like enlightenment tradition that we have um, as kind of a basis for our society. Um, how do you think that uh, I? How do you think that that interacts with the kind of idea of order and the maybe the like entrenchment of like social position that comes with an ordered society where people in different classes have different rituals that they're practicing to socialize them? Uh, in, in, the, in the Chinese uh, traditions, uh, there's a strong sense that there is an order of things and it's really to be it's stable. In fact, it never has been. If you study Chinese history, you see that there always has been changing conditions. Uh, and I think one thing that's happening now is the change is much more, uh, much more rapid and often more drastic in terms of, say, moving from the countryside into the city, uh, moving from an English-speaking culture to a Spanish-speaking culture. Um, so uh, a lot of Confucians like to talk about deep roots. You want to be rooted in your, in your land, uh, and you want to be rooted in your community. 
and the roots go through, uh, uh, appropriate uh, the community's uh, self-definition in terms of the texts of their commentarial tradition that make them Confucians or Taoists or Buddhists or, or whatever. Um, I believe myself that there is a Boston Confucian virtue of shallow roots, where you can move from one place to another place and put down roots quickly. You can't just come in with a culture and impose it on something else. You've got to be rooted in the culture that you move to. If you move to uh, uh, Mexico City, for instance. Uh, so you don't want to spring Boston culture and try to live in a, in a ghetto there. But you need the virtue of being able to put down shallow roots quickly. Uh, and those roots need to be mediated through your understanding of Confucianism, if, if you want to do that as a Confucian. Um, and if you move to Mexico City from Boston, you shouldn't give up the virtues of Boston culture, but you need to be able to root them in the place and the culture of uh, Mexico City. And uh, I think I, I may be the first Confucian to argue that point in, in print and in conferences and things like that. So you call yourself a Confucian because you practice it, and I want to kind of clarify for the listeners the difference between, and you make this distinction in the book, between someone who's a Confucian scholar, so that mm -hmm. would be someone who's a Sinologist who mm -hmm. deals with the primary text, a Confucian sympathizer, maybe someone who reads the texts and uh, studies them just to try to understand what Confucianism is, mm -hmm. and then on the other side, someone in a Western cultural context who legitimately calls themselves a Confucian. Mm -hmm. um, can, can you talk about that distinction, particularly in the context of the fact that in, in Eastern societies, um, religion or uh, spirituality is, is usually so deeply woven into the fabric of society uh, that they don't have this sense of, of joining a mm -hmm. community uh, mm -hmm. like we do. You know, you might go join a church here, mm -hmm. um, but in an Eastern society, they don't, they don't have that sense of you're in or you're out. And so could you sort of talk about that distinction within the context of the way it's woven into Eastern societies and how someone in Boston might, might do that? And if I can tack on an, an additional question to that excellent one, is how do you arrive just consciously at a stage where you feel like you're fully informed in terms of making that decision in and of itself in the first place? Well, first of all, nobody's ever fully informed about these things. Uh, you always have, have your own background. I was raised in Missouri. Uh, as a Methodist, uh, and uh, am actually ordained in the United Methodist Church. Uh, but there are lots and lots of ways of being a Methodist, and I've worked out my, my own through the various experiences that I've had. Uh, uh, as a Confucian, it's something that I learned as an alien uh, thing. I got more and more into it. I, I, I practiced Tai Chi Chuan uh, and studied that for 10 years and taught it for 10 years. Uh, actually, I studied it for 12 years with a teacher uh, and taught it for 10. Uh, and that gives a kind of physical way of embodying, but I still am a Methodist from Missouri uh, as, as I practice Confucianism. Now, I'm, I'm a philosopher. I have a PhD in philosophy uh, and have taught many different kinds of philosophy. But I think it's important to develop a philosophy. I think you need to have a philosophy. And uh, you, you develop a philosophy out of whatever roots seem to be uh, appealing to you. And so I'm a Platonist rather than an Aristotelian. Uh, in, I'm a Confucianist rather than a Taoist, although I've, I've learned from uh, that. Uh, and I've, I've learned a lot from Advaita Vedanta, uh, Hinduism, 
and uh, Sakya Yoga. Uh, and so these things come into my philosophy. But the philosophy that I develop, uh, I just published a three-volume philosophy of religion or philosophical theology, uh, which uh, deals with the question of what's ultimate and how do you relate to what's ultimate. I define religion as the human engagement of ultimacy. Uh, and then how do, you, how do you practice that? How do you live that? How do you understand being religious? So I, I would say for uh, any philosopher operating now, uh, it's very important to have a kind of comparative base because you need to be able to address the audience of anybody who's interested in the outcome of the inquiry. So now that's so that's what that's why you, any philosopher ought to know uh, East Asian philosophy, South Asian philosophy. You can't know it all, of course, uh, but you you can you need to be accountable to anybody who comes from those traditions in the arguments that you make. And in that context, it's uh, Confucianism is very uh, formative for my philosophy. Right, so um, if if Confucianism is going to be transferred out of an East Asian context, so there are sort of two arguments you make, and you, you lay this out in the book, which is the the uh, sort of negative one that Confuci Confucianism should not just be confined to right. East, East Asian right. philosophy, and then you make the positive argument that there are things of value to it that can be brought into Western mm -hmm. philosophy and Western mm -hmm. thinking. If, if it's to be translated uh, to the West through philosophers and through mm -hmm. academics, in what way might we, what, what are the, the principles in Confucianism that you see as the positive argument for transferring it here? And then beyond that, how does that can sort of transfer to the masses, to the people who don't necessarily have PhDs in philosophy? Uh, I'm not going to be able to answer the second question. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm very old, and I've been teaching for years and years and years. Nobody has, there, there probably are not very many Boston Confucians, right. or my kind of Methodist, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the, the first kind of question is, uh, uh, is what, what is it that's uh, basic in the Confucian tradition that we need to involve more of in the global conversation? And uh, we've talked about ritual, I think the, the Western philosophers don't pay much attention to ritual. They're unaware of how it permeates the whole uh, society, and they aren't aware of, uh, uh, of the fact that what you should do in most moral situations is to change the rituals. So I like that. That's, that's an emphasis that Confucianism can bring. But also, in, in the West, since the early modern period, uh, science has been very important, and science early defined itself as... Um, studying the facts, not the values of things. Mm -hmm. And the, it, it, it uh, insisted that what we, when we take something to be valuable, that's our projection onto it. Uh, this room that we're in uh, is just a bunch of, of wood and, uh, and other materials. Uh, in fact, it has an aesthetic quality. The photographs around it, the beautiful bookcases, and, and, and the acoustical character that the people listening uh, <laughs> would, would be able to appreciate. So uh, the Confucian tradition has always insisted that to be a thing is to be something of a harmony with a value. And it has everything has a value in itself, and things have values for others. So uh, the, uh, to, to reintegrate, uh, the values that we experience and about which we can be wrong, uh, that 
uh, that is something that the Confucian tradition can teach the West, or at least introduce into a conversation. The, uh, the drag on that, the difficulty, is that uh, Confucianism uh, has not been up on science until what, toward the end of the 19th century, when it began to take uh, modern science seriously. So the metaphysics of Confucianism needs to be updated to relate to contemporary science. And that, that's a lot that I've been working on. And, and specifically on that, on that point, the mediation between Confucianism, the metaphysics of Confucianism, and a more empirical framework, when you juxtapose that with the way that Western philosophy and Western theology engaged with the scientific transformation, historically speaking, do you, do you see elements of Confucianism that can better mediate the distinction and the differences between a scientific framework and a moral one? Because that's often, in, in the history of morality and ethics, especially in the West, that has often been a point of contention. Mm -hmm. Namely, can we attribute empirical values to moral ones? Mm -hmm. Can we reconcile them? And if so, how can that inform our framework in terms of evaluating situations? So, in your perspective, is there something that about Confucianism that can better mediate, I guess, the distinction between empiricism and morality? I, I think that we need a, a, a global conversation uh, that brings together the Confucian emphasis on the value of things. And now, that, what that conversation has to deal with uh, is how we think about the things of the world. Um, uh, science is uh, reductive. In a good sense of reductive, the science says um, that um, the way society works is what I can register on my theory. I'm a sociologist, there are many different kinds of sociology. Uh, the way uh, the body works uh, is what registers in, in your biology. Uh, and Confucians can uh, point out uh, that this reductive character leaves out the things that are of value. Uh, in the West, uh, the pragmatic tradition that comes from uh, Charles Peirce and William James and John Dewey, and the process philosophy tradition that comes from Alfred North Whiten, um, uh, they have recognized that experience experiences things as having value. And experience is always interpretive, and we can misinterpret the value of things. Uh, so the, one of the things that uh, Confucianism can insist on uh, is that anybody who thinks that the world just is a bunch of facts is wrong and probably maliciously misleading. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, one question that I had is, um, in what way do you see these uh, like Confucian rituals actually playing out in the West? Like, What like rituals would be good for our society and could we actually be starting to practice and implement in order to kind of uh, get, like, have a better cultural framework? Uh, well, I think one of the uh, most important uh, principles of ritual in Confucianism from the ancient period onward uh, has been uh, that your rituals ought to respect who people are. And who are people? People have natures that themselves are matrices of all the rituals they play. So uh, uh, all, all of us uh, relate to our family. Uh, and so uh, when I pay attention to you, I need to be alert to how you are dealing with the rituals of your family. Now, we have a ritual here. That's the ritual of the interview. 
uh, and uh, it, we play roles within that. Uh, but it's really important for us all to figure out how to respect one another. There are lots of ways of, of turning rituals into mere forms where you don't pay attention to the individual character. Uh, the uh, ancient Chinese have had a lot of trouble with the rule of law because law wants to treat everyone equally. But we're not equal. We're just different. We're different. And uh, not better or worse, but, but different. And we're different because we play different matrices of zillions of rituals uh, each. So I think the, um, the what Confucianism can contribute is uh, the insistence that any rituals you have uh, need to be respectful, and the situation has to define what respect consists in. Now, consider one of the big, the big problems of um, uh, of American culture. I don't want to generalize too much, but it's even worse elsewhere, uh, and that's uh, the, the ways by which women have been uh, subordinated, oppressed, uh, made to live uh, private lives, not allowed to be out in public very much and the, the history of giving women the vote and, and the, the feminist movement from the 50s and 60s onward, uh, going through many different stages and different kinds of feminism. There's African-American uh, feminism or womanism, uh, and then uh, just all, all sorts of things that have evolved uh, uh, in, in, in ways that make it seem as if what we need to do is to fight for the equality of women. What we need to do, Confucians would say, is figure out what are the rituals of life wherein unconsciously we subordinate women or objectify them or assume that they couldn't be president or whatever. What are those rituals? And identify them and then try to alter them. Now, the rituals are based upon other rituals, which are based upon other rituals, which are based upon other rituals, going back to things that are almost biological. So, for instance, uh, cognitively, uh, we're pretty much hardwired to want to agree with the people that we're with. So you want to agree with the people in your little little subculture. Uh, and if your subculture is really anti-women or subordinates women, then there'll be a tendency to agree with that. So you need to learn how to ritualize opposition within your own culture. And you're not going to say, well, uh, everybody's equal and that includes women. You've got to figure out why people would not recognize that when they think that they do. So same thing with racism. Uh, uh, we are all racists, uh, even those Africans, American, African Americans uh, among us. Uh, but uh, it, it's because we have internalized and play rituals that re-embody and support racism. We only see the the, the top of the. Uh, of the iceberg there. It's, it's the other stuff underneath that we need to be able to recognize. Uh, so in terms of rituals in Western societies, in a more specific sense, you discuss the rituals of family mm -hmm. uh, and how they differ from Confucian society, both the mm -hmm. society in which uh, mm -hmm. Confucius, uh, Confucianism was conceived and then also modern mm -hmm. East Asian mm -hmm. uh, society. And I, I want to discuss with with the strong bent towards hyper-individuality in uh, Western culture, how does one get involved in a sort of family ritual that begins to subordinate the self to the structure of the family? Or, or do you even see that itself as important? Um, I think the way you put it, it reflects a Western bias, okay. uh, which, uh, which I oppose, if I may. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, 
you know, the bias is this, to juxtapose uh, working for yourself as an individual, for your own career, as opposed to working for the good of the group. Um, and um, it's often said that Asian societies, are, people are trained to work for the good of the group and subordinate their personal char uh, character and, and vice versa uh, for the West. The way a Confucian would see that is that a human being uh, is what he or she is by virtue of participating in rituals with others. So uh, who we are, starting off from when we were little kids, is how we participate in the rituals of our families. Now Confucians would say, back from the time of Confucius, there ought to be a lot of respect for parents. Uh, and uh, in, in Confucian societies, through much of the history of China, uh, education was internal to the family, not external schools, but internal to the family. And the, uh, the mother's brother was the one who was in charge of the raising of the kids uh, at, at some periods in history. No, that's, we don't have to do it that way. There are lots of other ways to do it um, in America. Uh, the public schools have been very, very important because they're places where people who come from different cultures uh, have to integrate together and, be, and learn from one another. So the function of a public school is not to carry on a family tradition, but uh, to uh, integrate different family traditions, and, and, and so you learn to participate in a pluralistic society. Uh, uh, parochial schools have had the opposite uh, philosophy that you ought to have something as close to your family culture as possible uh, in, uh, behind your education. Uh, but uh, so uh, with regard to uh, uh, contemporary times, um, I, I think education uh, really should be preparing people uh, to be in, to, in a family structure where there is a nuclear family and you might live a thousand miles away from your aunts and uncles right. uh, and grandparents and so forth. Uh, I think we're moving into uh, a new period because of advanced technology now, where you don't really have to be in, in close proximity in, in order to have close relations with your, uh, your cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and grandchildren, in my case, <laughs> um, because they you know, fly back and forth a lot um, and uh, communicate from Skype or, or whatever other uh, modes of communication you have. But the point is, the rituals ought to address the issues of your time and place. So the issues that, that we have now uh, with the, the families that flourish in a pluralistic meritocratic culture, where you move from city to city to get a better job, um, and, and maybe the husband and wife live on opposite coasts uh, and go back and forth, uh, and kids are raised uh, not just within the nuclear family, uh, but through institutions like schools, preschools, uh, and so forth. Um, those are possibilities that did not exist for the 5th century BC Chinese. Um, and uh, so we need to work out the rituals that make these humane. And it, in learning to play those rituals, that's where we learn uh, the, the rituals, the, learn the virtues of humaneness, how you, how you can be wholehearted. Uh, how you can be loving or benevolent. Uh, run, which you mentioned before, is uh, often translated as plain love. Uh, so uh, the rituals that would be appropriate for living in Boston, uh, when you're, you, know, you all, un undergraduate students living in Boston, where your families come from who knows where, uh, and where you will probably not get jobs in Boston. Well, you, you might. 
uh, or, or you might have five careers. The first, <laughs> first, first 10 years will be uh, uh, working through a PhD and postdoctoral work in, in international <laughs> relations or whatever, and then go on to do all sorts of other things. Uh, that's uh, that's a, uh, a possibility in modern society. Uh, but as we develop rituals to humanize those things, we need to look out for uh, the continuing transferal of racism or, or the oppression of women or uh, uh, bigotry against uh, sexual minorities or whatever. All those things are, are uh, uh, things that a Confucian would say that we should look for. So you, uh, you, you raised, I think, a very interesting point about how our world, our conceptual framework is, is evolving by virtue of technology. <laughs> and the other point that you raised was that uh, there's a very Confucian emphasis on investigating rituals that you do not question, that are assumed and received. Right. Um, so explicitly investigating those. And my question is, in a context in which technological change is as rapid as it is, in a context in which our relations evolve at the pace that they do, how would a Confucian advocate investigating assumed rituals and received rituals within that kind of conceptual framework, one in which your point of reference seems to always be moving? You're, you, you can't exactly target a specific point because it continuously moves and evolves away from you. Well, the, um, the entire Chinese tradition, uh, in which Confucianism is just one part, has always emphasized change. So uh, the the most the ancient uh, textbook is the, the diagrams and the uh, I Ching, the book of changes. Uh, so to be a thing is to be passing through stages of a change. Uh, therefore, you ought to expect that the rituals that are now obtaining are in the process of changing. They're being changed by new conditions, uh, and and sometimes we're specifically trying to change them. So the political rituals in the United States uh, have been radically changed by President Trump, uh, who just wouldn't play the, uh, the rituals of courtesy that had been played before. We didn't know that we had those rituals until he just wouldn't play them anymore. Now, before this uh, recent election, uh, there were serious disputes between parties. Democrats and Republicans were, were very much at odds very often. Uh, but they generally, and for the most part, observed the rituals of courtesy that have now been lost so that uh, partisanship seems to be increasing now because there are no bridges, no ritual bridges uh, that connect across. Uh, so what, what do we do? Uh, go back to the olden days? There's no such thing as that. That's like saying the sage emperors <laughs> a thousand years ago taught us what to do. Uh, but we will need some kind of ritual masters uh, who uh, will, uh, can begin to uh, recreate uh, cooperation, uh, let people see that although their interests diverge, uh, um, sometimes radically, uh, sometimes ignorantly, you don't know what your interests are, uh, and so you, you follow one path for certain promises, and that path will not get you those promises. Uh, but I think that people need to become more self-conscious, more aware of what rituals are there and which ones are lacking. Yeah, I, 
since you bring up politics, I mean, I, I, I think that... Confucianism <laughs> is political. That's what I was going to say. I, Confucianism is, is political. It was developed in, in the context of political chaos. And um, mm-hmm. I don't think it takes me saying that we, we are in the midst of political chaos. <laughs> uh, and, but, but what's interesting is when you say that we didn't realize we had such and such a ritual until uh, Trump mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sort of blew through it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to me that we've always assumed being in a democratic society that what restrains our politicians are laws. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. For instance, um, in regard to Mr. Trump distangling himself from his investments, mm-hmm. we had always assumed, well, of course, there must be some law that requires the president of the United States to distangle themselves from gaining monetarily from mm-hmm. the office. Mm-hmm. But what we learned recently is the fact that, well, that's always relied upon the ethics of the person taking office. Mm-hmm. Right. And what, what I want to ask is, is, is essentially, I guess this is sort of a roundabout way to get to a question regarding our over-reliance on our politicians being moral, mm-hmm. the fact that they've sort of become morally vacuous, and how we reestablish leaders in our society, whether or not they're politicians, mm-hmm. that have some sense of virtue and some sense of ethic, because ultimately, ultimately what we're realizing is the restraint on our democracy and our society is not legal, it's moral. Right. Yes, I think that's a, that's a very good way to put it. Uh, the uh, laws can only do so much, uh, and there are usually ways of getting around the laws if the moral mores uh, run against that. Uh, and I think that uh, the the way out of the situation of fairly chaotic partisanship um, is to reestablish some common ideals uh, and uh, and morals. So uh, I think that. Uh, a large part of the Enlightenment sense of morality, I'm speaking in very general terms now, uh, has to do uh, with uh, uh, the public need to limit your pursuit of your self-interest by the respect for the self-interest of others. And I think that's what lies behind the, the assumption uh, that uh, a president should not uh, find great economic gain from the presidency, and that's because in order to protect the self-interest of all the other people, uh, can't let his brand uh, run over things. Now, uh, the Confucians would say that you can pass any laws that you want, but it's going to require a moral character of people to um, respect the principle behind the laws. So if the president or any elected official is to work for the good of all the constituents, uh, then um, there, there has to be a moral uh, acceptance uh, of that on the part of the, the people. Now, in, in American political tradition, some people say that uh, a, a politician who holds office should work for the good of all the constituents and others following in the, in the, uh, the tradition of, uh, I guess, Jackson, uh, would say that you work for the good of your party, your faction. Uh, and uh, that's, I think now, uh, that is what has come to be the dominant moral thought, uh, and it's not just Mr. Trump who's done that. Uh, we've had eight years of, uh, or, or six years of Republican opposition to anything that the Obama administration wanted to do just because it divided the constituencies into us versus them. Uh, and uh, uh, now, now we find that uh, 
The, the constituencies are breaking down into smaller and smaller units who define their own self-interest over against more and more of the others. Uh, and that simply cannot last. You cannot have the, the, the um, political morals of the country function like that. Um, and it may have to get worse before it gets better. Uh, and you're going to have to have some preachers. Uh, not, not the fancy preachers. Jefferson was a fancy preacher. George Washington uh, was a much more effective one uh, for actually trying to unify the, the different factions in the, uh, in the country. Uh, so, uh, go. Uh, I, I think, I guess President Obama would be someone that we would think of as uh, maybe fulfilling all of the, the kind of the rituals that are associated with good governance in America and right. public office. Yes. But um, it didn't actually lead to, or it led, it led to this situation that we're in now where Trump was elected and all mm-hmm. these things. So in, how do you think that someone like that who is committed to these rituals can actually try to spread them out more and like make them more long-lasting? Would it just need to be more people working on it at the same time? Or is there, do you think there are more effective means of transmitting these things? I don't think there's any magic bullet uh, for for doing that. Uh, the Confucians have always put great emphasis on the moral ideal of the leader. Uh, so the uh, one of the Confucian four books from the time of Confucius, uh, uh, the Great Learning, uh, says that once the emperor gets himself in order, he can order his family, and then his ministers will order their families, uh, and then it comes down to the common people. So. The, uh, it, it's like having uh, uh, great uh, athletes, sport uh, figures, uh, be models for people of various constituencies. On the other hand, I think that uh, there needs to be conversation about this, and not conversation that just divides interests, but conversation about um, uh, what policy can be supported that is going to be good for everybody, where you really understand the details of of the conflict, uh, and that's uh, that. I think uh, is what uh, Confucian would argue. And it, there are some things that you can't do anything about. There's a strong sense of tragedy in the Confucian tradition. Uh, we all should be trying to find ways of harmonizing. The function of rituals is to is to bring people with different interests together, and you, you want to find that. But sometimes you just can't make things fit together. You can't harmonize them. Uh, and that may be a situation that we're in for a while. Uh, it might be that some politician will come along uh, who will be able to say just the right things. I really liked Obama's uh, a- attention to the rituals of unifying the country and working for, uh, for everyone. As an African-American, uh, I think he, he knew that he had to be able to be exemplary uh, in that regard. Uh, and the opposition to him, uh, six years ago, uh, when the Republicans uh, took office, I think was based on uh, some racist uh, ideas, or uh, I, I think I think mainly it probably was was racism, attributing uh, socialism to him right. and all sorts of things that were, were right. false. So it seems we're coming very close to the end of our time. So I, I want to kind of take a turn mm-hmm. at the end here mm-hmm. towards the spirituality involved with Confucianism. You, you talk in the book about the fact that uh, a non, uh, non-ancient non Greek speaking or literate mm-hmm. person uh, can be a Platonist. Mm-hmm. And 
so you extend that argument to say that a non-sinologist can be a Confucian. Right, yeah. But uh, in, in what way, you know, Confucian is very distinct from, for example, the philosophy of Plato and a lot of the philosophical, philosophical ideas we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. because there is a spiritual dimension to it. And I want to talk about in this process of, of extracting Confucianism mm -hmm. from East Asia and mm -hmm. turning it into what you call a world culture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rather than an entanglement of world cultures. Mm -hmm. um, spirituality, how does spirituality play into that and how does multiple religious identity play into that when it's coming to the West? Mm -hmm. uh, I think spirituality has to do with how you engage what's ultimate. Uh, and the way by which uh, the Chinese generally, but uh, particularly the Confucians, uh, understand what's ultimate is that there is a kind of spontaneous emergence of, uh, of the world uh, not from any kind of God who has a plan or anything of that sort, uh, but uh, it, it's um, uh, a spontaneous emergence. That, and uh, as a philosopher, uh, I would say that, that you explain the complex by the simpler, uh, and it has to do with uh, uh, appreciating the novelty of what emerges and then looking to see what it is. So what kind of world do we have? It's not something we can try to deduce from the mind of God if we have an antecedent view of the mind of God, like uh, uh, he wants his people to win over against the other people or whatever. Uh, it's uh, by virtue of seeing what, uh, what of value is at stake in the life that we live. Uh, and so the spirituality of Confucianism does have to do with uh, emphasizing the respect and appropriate response to different people and different circumstances uh, in the large situation. And you're doing all of this at once. And you do the, you exercise this respect through the rituals that you play. Uh, and that's, so that's, uh, I think, um, an important dimension of spirituality. Now, uh, religion is often thought of in terms of being a member of a religious group. Uh, but uh, how to be a member of a group is a, an important comparative category, and the Confucians do it differently. There, there, there are no Confucian denominations or churches. The current Chinese government is trying to, to, to develop some institutions mm -hmm. that, that, that promote Confucianism, uh, but that's, that's not the same as the Methodist Church right. or the Catholic Church. Or is, isn't that a remarkable departure from the sort of atheistic vision we have of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, dating back to Mao. You know, uh, there was a, an interesting article in the New York Times last week where it talked about Xi Jinping uh, being more open to religions, uh, traditional Chinese religions, than has any leader of the Chinese Communist Party uh, mm -hmm. been, than any leader has been before, um, both in respect to Confucianism and to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess switching back, actually, to to East Asia rather than, than the West is um, what status does Confucianism have in its sort of ancestral homeland uh, right now and um, how is the Chinese Party, the Communist Party dealing with it? Yeah. Well, uh, during Mao's time, uh, Confucianism was uh, associated with the authoritarian imperial structure that was overthrown. Right. It was materially backward, uh, intellectually uh, obstructive of the use of modern science and so forth. Uh, uh, Mao, of course, was a, a Marxist, but a Chinese version of Marxism. Uh, and uh, that, I think, has been greatly softened uh, more recently. Uh, the first time I went to China, uh, it was 1986, and I talked with people in the government uh, about religion. And uh, they, they, uh, they had a, 
uh, an agency that uh, dealt with the religions and Confucianism wasn't there. They did not say that Confucianism was a religion. Uh, it was just a really bad medieval philosophy, <laughs> they thought. Now the government uh, has, uh, has turned around uh, and likes to claim that Confucianism is the spiritual heritage of China. Uh, and so it's sponsoring Confucian societies all around the world uh, to uh, get involved uh, in, in the promotion of Confucianism. Uh, not all Confucians particularly the scholars who pay attention to the real history of things, uh, uh, appreciate that. So at Boston University here, we have a, a, a Confucian society uh, that is uh, developed by uh, our students. It includes students from many different departments and from several institutions in the Boston area. But that's not sponsored by the Chinese government. They did, however, pay for my last trip to China. <laughs> generous. We'll, uh, we'll let Matthias close it out here with well, a question. Well, so, so um, we, did, we, we talked a little bit about how, um, in, in the Confucian view and also in the pragmatic view, experience and interpretation are intimately linked and conjoined, mm -hmm. and that, in fact, they, they are almost the foundation upon which we conceive of our very ideas and our perceptions themselves. Um, and we discussed a little bit about uh, factionalism. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that's emerged in our contemporary time, namely, is that we seemingly cannot even agree on a very basic notion of truth. Mm -hmm. And my question is, how does the Confucian and pragmatist perspective of the experientially informed interpretation of data mm -hmm. relate to different conceptions of truth and the friction derived from that? And how would a Confucian respond to a context in which that friction has seemingly got to a point where it's almost untenable conceptually. Uh, I think a contemporary Confucian would be against the postmoderns. Uh, postmodernism says that the, the, what we talk about is the discourse, that is what previously had been said, and we don't look for, for facts, and we don't look for uh, general theories that allow us to come at uh, topics from different angles. The function of these big theories is to provide a scaffolding for coming at the topic from different angles, where you're responsible to people who occupy different places in that theory. Uh, and postmodernism is against that. Well, those are the big logocentric uh, ideas that are all, all matters of Western bias. And the Confucians would say uh, that uh, when, when you discover a bias, then you need to correct it. You need to find a way not to be biased there. Uh, and so uh, it would be very important to be uh, realistic in the philosophical sense of paying attention to what's real as opposed to what has been said. Um, and uh, th that's so in the, in the sciences. So we really ought to pay attention to what the climatologists say about climate change. There are facts there, even when you can dispute the interpretation of them sometimes. Uh, and we ought to pay attention to what people really are and not treat everybody else as a victim that we're going to help or as an oppressor that we're going to uh, oppose. Uh, and so I, I think the Confucians would emphasize uh, empirical inquiry, learning, learning from experience, and being as critical as you can be of the hypothesis that you don't, don't even know that you're operating with. Thank you so much for spending time with us and uh, you know engaging in this ritual of interview. Uh, <laughs> yes. We appreciate it. and. Um, we it's been a great pleasure. It's been yeah, a great pleasure. Thank you. Conversation. Thank you. Conversation. Thank you. Conversation.